right, that was something. <laughs> so uh, Pride Month is the new Christmas. I mean, you know, Jesus did live at home with his mom until he was 30 and then only hung out with 12 guys. So <laughs> you do have to wonder, you know, at a certain point. <laughs> uh, that, was a, that was a beautiful and touching um, meditation. Thank you, David. And uh, so it's a bit hard to follow. And um, yeah, and I, I want to talk about some difficult difficult things in a way. I want to raise some difficult tensions. I heard Anne Lamott say, um, every preacher should uh, wear tennis shoes, <laughs> because if they're, if they're doing a good job from time to time, they're going to have to run away. So um, I've got my tennis shoes on. And um, yeah, I want to, in a general sense, we're starting a new series. Like, we have questions, and, and having questions, I think, is a fundamental part of this place's DNA, and we, we seem to be unafraid of questions, at least in part, and of course, you might want to ask, well, what kind of questions are off limits, and um, what, how open are we to, to being challenged, and, uh, and so I, I want to I begin by, by saying that um, if you want an expert on Pride Month, you should ask a white, straight male to speak. <laughs> so you're welcome. <laughs> so that's my first caveat. But I do want to talk a bit about pride. And, and I want to talk about what I think are challenges and opportunities that are arising kind of culturally as we, as we speak. And, um, and like, what is it that we're celebrating? And, um, and so two, two questions I want to put side by side are, are we separate or are we one? Those, that's really the title of today's talk, are we separate, which is really an orient, orientation around a word like diversity, or are we one, which is really centered around the idea of common humanity. And that takes us right into the heart of our values. And what I think is so amazing about this place is our own values are intention. And actually, I think it's, t it's tension where it's in the midst of tension where growth is possible. Like if we only celebrate diversity and difference, at what cost to what unites us? And if we only focus on we're all the same, what are we ignoring about the things that make us unique and wildly different? So I'm just suggesting right off the beginning, right from the beginning, that I, I don't intend to resolve the tension between are we separate or are we one. In fact, I want to, I want to emphasize it. I want to, to, to raise up those tensions. And then let's throw in a third. Why not? Which is, well, another one of our values, um, open inquiry. So are we open to, to challenging even our own ideas about things? Are we open to cell phones? <laughs> Calling in. So anyway, that's the kind of terrain I want to I wanna just roam around in this morning. And I actually typed some things out. So you know I'm getting serious when I have to actually type out um, my talk here. So I'll try to stick to more or less what I've, what I've imagined, I might say. And I also want to say some like, personal things at the beginning. Because it, in my view, Ken, the view of Kent Dobson, it feels like the, the, our cultural... Um, 
the cultural landscape has changed in the last 10 years, in some, in, I, I think in some significant ways. And the temperature is, is being turned up on culture wars. Now, you might disagree. You might say, hey, there are always been culture wars, and all right, maybe we need a, a, a deeper historical perspective. But that's just the way it feels, at least to me. And like 10 years ago, if you would have asked me about pride, my general reaction would have been, this is a great thing. Like, it's just great that you can march in the streets and there's at least less fear around the repercussions. Like, not that there's no fear, and, and, and David was even expressing that, even today. There's, there is some fear. Like, what, what are the repercussions here, and how might, what might happen if I, I walk in the street? And I'd say, yeah, this is an amazing thing. And... Um, and a very serious, potentially, shift in our, our whole cultural landscape, the fact that this is now possible. And, and same with gay marriage. Like, if you had asked me about gay marriage 10 years ago, I would have said that I support uh, gay marriage. And I, it's funny because I support it for kind of two reasons. Not that you need my reasons, I mean. Um, but I'll just give them to you anyway because I want to sort of at least be honest about where I'm coming from. The first just has to do with the government in general. <laughs> like, I don't particularly trust the government making very strict rules about what people should be doing in the moral and ethical domain. Now, that position has limits, because you were like, well, some things, some things we can agree, all right? But more or less, I, I tend to have the attitude of more freedom and, and not less. And kind of let's stay out of the bedroom if possible is my, my, is my general feeling about that. And also, here's what's funny. I also support gay marriage um, for kind of conservative and religious reasons, which is kind of funny to me. I actually think marriage is important. Like, I value it. I would even say that it's sacred, but I don't need, like, the Bible or Christianity to say so. I just mean, like, there's something, like, kind of amazing about it that's sacred and should be honored. And, and I, you know, I, I've been married for almost 25 years. I'll also say marriage is really hard. <laughs> and there's, there's not a, uh, and it is a human cultural expression. I realize that. But it seems like a pretty good one if you want to explore things like trust and intimacy. If you want to explore trust and intimacy, marriage is a pretty good way of, of, of wandering into that terrain. So I, I tend to, to have a very high view of marriage. And so I want more and more people to be included in it. That's kind of my, that's what I mean by it's kind of a conservative, sort of old-fashioned view. Um, but what else do I want to say? Uh, it seems like times have changed, though, because I was just sort of reflecting 10 years ago, how did I feel about these things, and how did I feel about, about gay marriage and about pride, and the rhetoric has changed. And words like diversity have become instead of the way I took them to mean, hey, wouldn't it be great if more people are included, has become a sort of weapon. It's getting weaponized, really on both sides. And, and I, I'm kind of sad about that. Um, and pride has become uh, corporatized, if that's the right word. Like, it's now which corporations think that the best PR would be to either be against it or for it. And I'm going to tell you something in case you don't know. The board 
of any corporation does not care about your soul. <laughs> really, they just care about shares. And so I don't really know what to make of it. I'm, my, my feeling is like the jury's out, all right? So any given corporation supports or doesn't support, I say the jury's out, the jury's out. I don't know. Um, I don't know what the long-term effects are, but I, there's something about, at least from it, just if I'm personal about it, I mistrust about it. It's like putting um, end racism at the end of the end zone in the NFL. I just think, this is going to do it, really? Just going to put that in the end zone where, I don't know, the majority of people watching are white and the majority of people playing are black. It's just interesting. It's just very interesting. And so anyway, I just mistrust um, the corporate bandwagon around things like pride. It doesn't really express, as you were uh, expressing, David, the origins of where this came from and who was actually taking very serious risks to be a part of this, to, to say, hey, we would like to be um, acknowledged as, as part of this culture and this society. Okay, what else has changed, it seems to me? Well, here's the funny thing about marriage. Right now, or it used to be like, we want gay marriage, and now it's like marriage is the problem. It's a Western patriarchal power system bent on oppression, I think. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. It certainly can be. Um, but I don't know. That's what I mean about the cultural landscape is shifting. And, and I find that the far right is getting fed up and getting meaner. That's my opinion. And I think the far left is getting fed up and getting meaner. <laughs> so the heat's getting turned up. And I'm just wondering, like, is, is this really the most healthy direction to go? And um, I think the cultural wars are dominating our, our thinking and um, like the, the, the kinds of questions that are involved in just ordinary living. And, and here's another surprise that's changing in the last 10 years. If you would have told me 10 years ago that transgender or trans issues would be right at the center of the cultural debates, I wouldn't have believed you. Would you have believed it 10 years ago? No, but it is. It's like right there. And it's, it's real and symbolic at the same time. It's symbolic of something. And we're getting into these extreme camps, which is there's nothing to see here. It doesn't exist or no questions asked, depending on what sort of side you fall on. Um, yeah, it's like a litmus test. So having rational and compassionate conversations around the meaning of gender, which is something I would argue for, rational and compassionate conversations around the meaning of gender, both culturally and biologically, isn't really happening because the culture war is turned up to like 11. There isn't really complex and nuanced conversation, and I'll tell you something. This is complex and nuanced terrain. It really is. So my feeling is, what can we do to turn the heat down? Um, I think we need to have really important conversations about highly potent drugs and hormones. That's a very important conversation. We can't say nothing to see here. And we can't say no questions asked. 
We live in a brave new world. You think modern medicine is tricky right now? Just give it another 10 years. You wait to see how much AI is going to change the landscape of the modern biomedically engineered human experience, because it is. And so anyway, complexity calls for complexity and for nuanced conversation. Um, so that's what I'd be arguing for. And, um, and the, all of the ethical questions that are, are being discussed right now. I, I heard a new term this week from a parent with a, a transgender kid. And, um, and here's the term, trans-trending, or there's a trans-trender. And this is very interesting. So inside the transgender community, they're worried about people who are jumping on the transgender bandwagon, and they call them trans-trenders, which is funny. So like even within what seems like a supportive community, there's questions about what is really happening here? And is this helpful and is it not? What does it do to kids who are actually transgender when there's a lot of trans-trending going on, trying on clothes, essentially, or the metaphorical equivalent of it? I just think, okay, wow. I thought it was complex. Things just got even more complex. So what's going on in the landscape? And maybe one more thing here. Um, in case you don't know, in the United States of America, there is a major epidemic. And that major epi epidemic is suicide. It is absolutely an epidemic. And it's scary. And it's part of this conversation, by the way. Mental health is part of this conversation. And it's really, really hard to have a conversation about that. And you know, like my brother, for example, he served two tours in Iraq. And he's lost more friends to suicide than when he was at war. So, yeah. It's like our culture is getting sicker, not healthier, even though we have access to the most sophisticated um, medical system that humanity has ever been in contact with. After what well, they just excavated last, you know, last, well, they had they've been excavating it for a year, but they released the findings of a site in which they found human tools that are 900,000 years old. I don't know if I mentioned that last time. I just, this is the coolest to me. I, I love archaeology, but 900,000 years ago, people had tools. That's called technology. And it's just amazing. But right now, it's a, it is a brave new world. Things have gone up exponentially in terms of what we have access to and the implications of such. We haven't even caught up to our own technology. Um, so in my view, what am I saying here? That we need more questions. We need more nuance. We need more complexity. We just need more of it. And Like, I, like uh, John O'Donohue says, the question is a lantern. The question is a lantern. The answer is not a lantern. The answer snuffs everything out. We need more questions, not, not fewer. Okay. Uh, let me say something else that's on the personal, the personal sphere. Because I was thinking about this. Like, what, what is my relationship with the other side? And how did I get to the, 
the place that I'm at. And I hope my own views are in process of evolving and changing. Um, <clears throat> like, so I grew up in a Christian fundamentalist household and culture. In fact, have you seen um, Shiny Happy People? Okay, cancel all your plans and watch this documentary on Netflix. It's about the Duggars. By the way, speaking of the corporatization of pride, Netflix has a little banner that says pride. Like, here are the things that you can watch if you support pride. I don't think shiny happy people is, is one of the choices in there. But it's about Christian fundamentalism and um, about a certain version of it that I was actually exposed to. Um, there's a guy named Bill Gothard who taught this sort of very strict, um, uh, very gendered, separate, uh, fundamentalist Christian world. And, and it was very attractive to people in the 1980s because it felt like culture was, you know, like unraveling, like, you know, young people are going out and doing crazy things. And, and so if you're a parent, um, I'm a parent, uh, it's scary to be a parent. And so when somebody says, don't worry, God knows exactly how to do this, just follow these rules, that's kind of attractive. You know, it's like, okay, all right. Instead of just making it up, <laughs> I'll just follow the rules here. And so this kind of Christian fundamentalism was around, and I was maybe like one step to the left of that, meaning the language was around. Bill Gothard taught that Cabbage Patch dolls, for example, were demon-possessed. I was taught that, you know. <laughs> That's why I still have so many of them. Um, but a lot of really other dark things. And the funny thing about Christian fundamentalism, especially this movement, is like the number one thing was don't think about sex, you know. So what were we all doing? <laughs> it's, that's how it always works. Don't think about sex. Don't think about sex. Don't think about sex. I can't help it. Stop telling me not to think about sex. Anyway, that's the kind of world I grew up in. And, and gay people were condemned in that world. They were condemned. They, they were thought, we thought, gay people you know, weren't real Christians or couldn't be or were going to uh, be condemned to hell and things like this. And, in the 1980s, if you remember, um, was a scary time because of the AIDS epidemic. And some Christian fundamentalists were saying, hey, this is, uh, this is part of God's condemnation of gay people. This is the, these are the consequences. And this is quite a popular view. And thankfully, I got lucky in a way. And my dad um, was, on the one hand, a Christian fundamentalist. He helped start the moral majority with Jerry Falwell. On the other hand, he was just an Irish kid from Belfast, so you weren't quite sure what he believed about things. And it's like he didn't take it all that seriously. And he left that world to a, to a certain degree, even though he didn't leave Christianity, he didn't leave evangelicalism. But at Calvary Church in, in Grand Rapids in the 1980s, he had the first support group for people with AIDS. And of course, there were protests about this, and people left the church, and they stopped giving money. That's always the big thing. You want to shut a church down? I'm not giving my money. So somehow he survived that. And that was the beginning of just like a shift just in my own world. Like, oh, okay, well, um, maybe I don't have the – maybe there are some questions here. It's probably the best way to say it. Maybe there are some questions here. And, and I remember um, I, I lived in, in um, a kind of a rural – sort of suburb of, of Rockford and on a dirt road, and we had some um, gay neighbors who moved in. And this is really my first exposure to, you know, living around, around gay people. And I was a punk. Like, you think I'm mean now? Well, you probably, maybe you don't think I'm mean, but I'm actually quite mean. 
And I was even meaner. I was even meaner then. And all the slurs that you can think of, that's how I talked. And that's how, I mean, that, I would say that's how we all talk. But that's how I talk. All the slurs, all of the, the ways of, you know, um, middle school boys talk, and including to these neighbors. And it caused a lot of tension in the neighborhood. And really tension that I, I can't even be that explicit about. But things did not go well. Things didn't go well. And eventually this couple moved out. And um, in part because of Kent Dobson, because of, you know, a 14, 15-year-old kid just being a punk. I wasn't the only one, but I was there. It was part of my, it's part of my story. And, and um, it wasn't shortly thereafter, probably high school, where I started to feel sort of embarrassed. Well, I, I, w- I felt embarrassed in the moment. I really did. I felt embarrassed. I was like, ooh, what am I doing here? And, and eventually that... that that caused a big shift and change in, in my own perspective on things. And um, I felt like I had some um, apology to make, but I didn't know these people. I couldn't find them. So I wrote a play in college. I was an English major, and I also um, was into playwriting at the time. I wrote a play about this. And uh, I went to Liberty, by the way, Jerry Falwell's school. And, um, and they put it on. And it was quite a controversial play. They tried to shut it down like uh, five minutes before it started because it had these themes in it. And, and it was just, just my own story about how I behaved in this cul-de-sac. And the whole play was set in a cul-de-sac with the mailboxes and everything. And um, it was just the way we talked. And it was, whew, it was, it was funny. Um, and also really important. And I think it was at that point in my life when I realized not through intellectual decision, but just, you know how you wake up one day and you're like, I don't believe those things anymore about human beings. Like, nobody convinced me, but I just, my own behavior, my own experience, when I actually started um, having gay friends, things changed. Nothing helps more than having a friend that doesn't, um, that's not from your particular milieu. Nothing helps more than that. Because then it's never... You can never just say they anymore, those people. It's like, oh, actually, I have, I have a friend. And that's what happened to me. Um, in other words, I think it's important when any kind of other cracks your worldview. So I got three. That was all introduction, all right? <laughs> And I have three points, and I'll try to make them succinct here. I, I'm trying to offer some solutions, and they're going to sound very old-fashioned. And here's, here's solution number one. I actually think we need a word that was popular in the 90s that probably some of you had as a bumper sticker on your car, which is tolerance. Tolerance has become out of fashion right now, and in, in, in what's being promoted is acceptance. You know, there is nothing more profound than on the individual level when you move from tolerance to acceptance. But you know what? You can't make that happen. And you know what doesn't work? Demanding acceptance. I demand that you accept fill in the blank. I know you. You're like, no. It doesn't matter what it is because it's just that's part of human nature. It doesn't seem to work like that. Coercion, force, demanding I demand that you accept fill in the blank. I demand that you accept, I don't know, that the Lions won the Super Bowl last year. 
I mean, that's as silly as that is. So what I'm saying is, I think we actually have a lot of room to grow in with an old-fashioned word like tolerance. Do you know what tolerance means? To bear. That's what it means. To suffer, actually, or to carry. And guess what? In all of our celebration of diversity, which I support, there are many people who do not hold your particular views. Are you aware of this? <laughs> so it feels like there is an impasse. What I'm suggesting is that tolerance actually has, can help a long ways. I don't have to accept someone else's views that I don't particularly hold. But I can bear them long enough so that there's a shift in the conversation, which I think can actually happen. That means you have to suffer. And you know another word for, for tolerance and suffering? Like the Thanksgiving dinner. That's what I mean. <laughs> like, you can fight, and sometimes that's really important, but guess what? You have to show up next year. And you have to bear the fact that your mom or your uncle or your cousin is a fill-in-the-blank. So I, I'm, I'm saying, in a country of 350 million people, I, I, I think it's an important word. It's an important word. And we should not forget that it can go a long ways. This is old-school liberal thought, in case you're wondering. All right, here's number two. I want to read you a sentence that, in fact, this is how creepy our world is. If I tell you who said this sentence, the YouTube algorithms will cut out this part of my speech. Okay? You're like, what? Who's in charge of this? Here's the, here's the line. I have a dream that my four children will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. Do you know who said that? I want to read it again. I have a dream that my four little children will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. The reason why, by the way, YouTube will cut that out is that it's like a copyright issue. Intellectual properties. It's wrong, in my opinion, but anyway. I thought YouTube was perfect. I'm suggesting that that dream is fading a bit. It's fading. And in the hyper-diversity world, where all we're doing is looking at race and gender, ethnicity, difference, something of this original vision is being lost, in my opinion. Just hear it again. I have a dream that my four little children will not be judged by the color of their skin. I'm saying old-fashioned Kent here, this is a vision that's still worth maintaining. That one day, we won't have to be marching like this. Or shifting even laws around. I'm not against shifting laws. But one day, this won't be the central factor. That there'll be something, and this is the question, that binds us together. That there's something we share in common. That common humanity um, is a real thing. And it goes beyond. The funny thing is that the science supports it. We were talking about that in pre-talk, that any DNA will test will show you that, that there is much more commonality than you think, especially when it comes to what we think of as racial diversity. So do a DNA test if you don't believe me. Okay. So despite our differences in gender, race, social class, status, zip code. There's something that fundamentally binds us together. This, I think, is a dream that's still worth talking about, along with old-fashioned tolerance. 
by the way, the fact that I'm saying this as in some circles as a white male disqualifies me from saying it. I, I'm not allowed to say it. And I'm saying I reject this view. I reject this view on the, on, on the grounds of common humanity. That despite the fact of the sins of my forefathers and my own sins, which I just expressed to you five minutes ago, I still would like to stand on my own two feet and would still, my voice matters just as much as your voice. Have I made sense? Okay. And what are the things that bind us together? Well, love, the desire for freedom, the fact, as David Deedham is saying, that we all struggle. We all struggle. We all are suffering somewhere in there. And I think we ought to let that um, bring us together. Okay. And here's the final thing. We're shining like the sun. And this is a spiritual view. This is a spiritual view. After all, we're a spiritual community. I want to turn to Thomas Merton. I'm going to end with his words. And I'm not saying that you can easily adopt his view of the world. I don't know how he had this particular view of the world. A, a monk um, who grew up in France and moved here to Kentucky, of all places, in the middle of nowhere. And so today there is a sign, like a, a permanent sign, on the corner of 4th and Walnut in Louisville, Kentucky. And this is what the sign says. I want to read it to you, and this will be, I might pause a few times, but this will be how I want to end. In, in Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people. Well, which ones? <laughs> so I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, and they were mine and, our, and I theirs. That we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world. That's the line that I find particularly striking. Do you want to know what leads to suicidal thoughts? A world of, of increased isolation. And that's the direction a lot of our culture is going increased loneliness, separation, and isolation. And he was like, one day, by the way, I'd just gotten out of the hospital, so nothing like a good illness to wake you up. And all of a sudden, he, it's like waking from a dream. I love these people. They're mine and I theirs. That's a spiritual vision, I'd say. I'm going to keep reading. This sense of liberation from an illusory Difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. This happened to me only one time in my life. I was in the Hinnom Valley in Jerusalem on the way home from class, and I was tired of class. You know how you get, I'm so tired of Hebrew. No more parsing verbs. I was just done. And Jerusalem will wear you down. You think we live in a culture that judges one another? I mean, every three feet in Israel, you're like this. You know, who's around me? What's safe? What's not safe? What kind of people are present? How do I categorize? Who's wearing what? All these signals. It's a very awesome but contentious place. And I just was tired and I laid down in the sun 
you know, in the middle of this olive grove. And I was just tired. And all of a sudden, up came a Muslim mother. How did I know? It's not that hard. <laughs> With her kids. And they're just playing like, like some little game. And then comes another Arab man carrying a bag of warm pita bread. And when they just come out of the oven, they come out of the oven, they're puffed up like little balls, and then they go flat. And you've never had pita bread until you've had it from the old city in Jerusalem. And, and the bag is like steamy still from the warm. And, and I, had the, I had just a taste of what Merton is talking about. I was like, I love these people. I could, and I'm not exaggerating, go and eat at their house. And I could ask. I'd say, hey, can I come eat with you? And they'd say yes. And, and in that moment, I could have said, hey, come to my house. And they would have said yes. That's waking from a dream. Do you think we had the same political views? No. All right. I'm almost done. He goes on. I have the immense joy, joy of being man. He means humanity. It's this old, you know, old language here. I have the immense joy of being human, a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate. Here's a little bit of Christian theology. As if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me, now I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this, but it can't be explained. There's no way of telling people that they are walking around shining like the sun. One of the saddest things, I think, happening in our culture right now is what's happening in Christian circles. As Christianity, as, re as a religion, begins to wane and fracture and fragment. Um, it's losing touch with what Merton is talking about. Did you know Christianity started as a, as a spirituality? It wouldn't even be a religion of inclusion. Radical, radical inclusion. The New Testament is a radical book. Do you know it's so radical that the empire that didn't like those books executed people who read them? That's the definition of a radical text. If the powers that be say, you can't even read this, you don't even have the right to live. And here are things in the New Testament. Now, I know the New Testament is, is confusing, but here are some, some lines in there. Here's from Paul. In Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. That single line took the empire down. It did. In Christ... There's no Jew or Gentile. Do you know that's like saying the fundamental divisions of life of which I know who I am, Paul is questioning. How about male and female? He's like, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, how about slave or free? He's like, there's no such thing. Now, who's happy if they're hearing this? <laughs> Usually those who have been outside of the mainstream. And that's what made Christianity attractive. So I'm just saying, one of the saddest things about the state of the contemporary church is it's, it's losing touch with this. My, my suggestion is that, 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 that inside the Christian tradition that they go deeper. I don't think religion, nobody's going to, I mean, a lot of people are re leaving religion, but many people are not going to leave religion. I don't know if you're aware of this. Go to the next Thanksgiving dinner, and I, I've proven my point, Okay. So the question is not, will these people leave? The question is, how deep will they go inside their own tradition, which calls the kind of extreme, divisive ideology right into question. Anyway, that's just my opinion.
Oh, where was I? I was reading a quote. I got really sidetracked there. Here's the final paragraph, and I'm done. Then it was as if, as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty in their hearts. The depths of their hearts where neither sin, mistakes, nor desire, nor self-knowledge, I know who I am, in other words, can reach. This is something I believe in, that inside the human soul, there's this kind of diamond, this kind of shining eminence of essence that goes beyond even self-knowledge. The core of their reality, the person, he's going to use some spiritual language, the person that each one is in God's eyes, in the transcendent, in the eyes of the transcendent. If only they could all see themselves as they really are. <laughs> if only we could see each other the way, that way all the time, there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. But this cannot be seen. <laughs> only believed and, quote, understood by a peculiar gift. So I wish along some lonely street corner, you and I get a taste of the gift that he's describing. Thanks for listening.